Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going down under to talk about the colonization, specifically of Tasmania, within the context of Australian quote unquote exploration. It's one of the great case studies of clear case studies of ethnic cleansing. But before we dig into the colonial project, I want to talk just super briefly about Aboriginal origins. Neither myself or Nick are experts on Aboriginal uh, ethno history. We definitely have a little bit more grounding in what, what took place, obviously, in the Americas and the First Nations here. Um, but we're still going to at least make mention of the fact that there are two distinct groups on the Australian continent to include Tasmania and a whole host of islands. Uh, they are called Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. They migrated to this continent as early as 65,000 years ago from Southeast Asia, though it's hotly debated what their migratory paths were. Regardless, these are some of the earliest known human voyages in the world. So they've been there for 65,000 years. Uh, a lot of this took place when it was called Sahul, which is like this large landmass that includes a number of other islands to include Papua New Guinea. So like in terms of DNA, their closest relatives would be in Papua New Guinea and some of the other Pacific islands. Multidisciplinary data becomes a little bit clearer about the aboriginals um, around 2000 BCE. Um, only about 13 of the likely 250 different language groups survive to this day. And we do know there was as many as 400 distinct nations or peoples on the continent before the Europeans showed up. In terms of culture, they varied by environment, just like any other group um, in the uh, Neolithic period. It's based on their material conditions, what their values were, their ethics, etc. Though common themes did exist across the uh, entire continent. Uh, oral tradition was important. Art, dancing were celebrated. Relationships to the natural world were key. There were large kinship groups and family, of course, was key. For more on the values of many of the Aboriginal people, we do have an episode called The Secret of Dreaming that goes through one of their creation stories. I highly recommend you all go check that out. It will give you a little bit more insight into the value systems at play for these people that had been there, again, for 65,000 years before the Europeans showed up. Anything you want to add before we dig into the origins of the colonial process? Nope. Okay, so in terms of Australia in general, um, Captain Lieutenant James Cook, Captain Cook, he claims the continent for England in 1770 to deal with actually the overcrowded English prisons. I think everybody knows that about Australia's origins, but in his mind, uh, again, the audacious thing is that it is considered terra nullius, basically translates from Latin to English as the land of nobody, even though there had been documents of many earlier sailors and, and him, himself of people living there. Um, thousands and thousands of people. What do you think gave him the right in his own warped mind to call it terra nullius, the land of nobody, knowing thousands of people live there? I mean, I think his Western exceptionalism and white supremacy combined with Christian beliefs, right? <laughs> the, the things that we all, we, the, the common patterns that we see when we're talking about, you know, Westerners colonizing other areas. Absolutely. Captain Cook wasn't even really the first Euro to try and make any claims um, before it was actually the Dutch were there and the Spanish. So these expeditions actually land before the Brits. Um, in fact, it's where we get the name Australia from, Australia del Espirito Santo. Sorry for my Spanish there, but it basically translates as Southern Land of the Holy Spirit. And it was named that by um, the explorer Pedro Fernandez de Quiros. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the earliest part of Australian uh, colonization by the British that really kicks off um, in what we now call like Victoria, New South Wales. And it goes on for a little while before we get to Tasmania. And Tasmania is going to be the focus of what we want to talk about. So I just want to kind of like, I guess we'll just go right into Tasmania. Anything you want to say before we do that? No. Okay, so Tasmania, Tasmanian colonization is known as the Black War, and it is genocide by definition. At this point in the colonial process of Australia, the British have already decided that their colonial project is going to be predicated on war. They had met um, initially some welcoming, um, welcoming arms in terms of trade when they landed in New South Wales and then moved into Victoria and things along those lines, but because of the colonial process, again, you can cut and paste this to colonial projects in Southeast Asia, colonial projects projects in Latin America, in North America, in Sub-Saharan Africa. After only a few years, usually the indigenous populations come to realize that who they welcomed is there for more than just a, uh, it's just uh, reciprocal trading. They're there to take land. They're there to take labor. They're there to exploit resources, etc. So resistance picked up pretty quick. There's a couple of pretty cool uh, resistance stories. One of them is led by like the the great uh, indigenous warrior named Pemoli. Um, we probably will do an episode on him a little bit later. The reason I mention this though is any sort of resistance, indigenous resistance or agency, is cause for calls for war. And through that war, eventually the ethnic cleansing of the Aboriginal people, and that's important. So essentially, in the British mind, in this case, when they colonize somewhere, the natives, so to speak, as they would call them, or the savages, uh, as they would call them, are supposed to just willingly give themselves up to labor, give their resources away, give their land. And if there's any resistance, it's their fault. It's the natives' fault, and they deserve to. That war must be waged, and they deserve to be removed, basically, from the face of the earth. There's probably some commentary there on the differences between, of course, Catholic colonization projects and mm -hmm. Protestant colonization projects. Um, we don't have time to dig into that, although we have briefly mentioned it in past episodes when we talked about Max Weber's The Protestant Work Ethics. So maybe if you want, you can dig back into that episode. But I do think there's some commentary there. Anyway, without further ado, let's dig into Tasmania. So as Nick already said, Raphael Lemkin, he was a Polish jurist after the Holocaust. He coined the word um, genocide to, de to describe the crime that he witnessed um, during World War II. It comes from the Greek word genos or race, and it is completed with the Latin word side or killing. And again, he didn't use just the Holocaust for his example. The second example he used when he coined this term in 1944, excuse me, 1948 was Tasmania. So let's talk about it. The British arrive in 1803. Technically, they are protecting Aboriginals under an earlier 18 or under a later 1805 colonial law, but nobody in power ever does anything about the early abuses that basically set a precedent. So the British arrive, and again, they'd already been engaging in conflict on the main mainland of Australia. So laws slowly began to be passed about how there should be somewhat of a protective nature to the British colonial project. But the settlers themselves can commit any sort of crime they want against the aboriginals. And in theory, they would be prosecuted under law, but in actual practice, they never were. Um, and that's one of the more important aspects that we see with settler colonialism. So oftentimes there's colonial projects by companies like the British East India Company, or there's colonial projects by militaries. 
But on settler colonial projects, those are a little bit tougher because then the governing body has to decide when violence occurs, who are they going to side with? Technically, they're supposed to be there to protect all peoples, but are they going to protect their own settlers or are they going to protect the indigenous people that they consider less than? I think the answer is very clear. And Tasmania is going to be one of those examples of settler violence. So one of the great examples of this took place very early on in 1804. There was a settlement at Risdon Cove where three aboriginals are killed almost on site and no charges were ever brought against the murders. That's one of the first like documented cases where this took place. It's also at Risdon Cove where there is the earliest documentation of child abductions of aboriginal people and the children are abducted uh, not because they love babies or anything along those lines, but they're going to intentionally, gr- intentionally groom them for labor practices. So even though in, back in England, they are at, in 1804, I believe, uh, and Nick can maybe correct me if I'm wrong or the commenters, they're dabbling already with the idea of abolishing slavery back in England. But in this colonial project, we see Aboriginal children being abducted to be placed basically in forced labor. Any thoughts there? I mean, like you said, right, it's this interesting dynamic, this settler colonialism where the state's official position is that the aboriginals in this case, right, the indigenous population is protected under law, just like the settlers are. But the settlers then take things into their own hands, essentially. And, you know, as we know, the state isn't going to enforce the law for any of the crimes that they commit against the aboriginals in this case. Absolutely. And we have to keep in mind when we say protected under the law, protected under the law in terms of like life and livelihood, they don't actually have the same rights under the British Mm -hmm. Bill of Rights, which was a thing already at this point in time. They don't have those type of rights because they're not British citizens. So we're just saying they're protected as far as they shouldn't just be murdered um, en masse, which they're going to be. Ben Madley is a key researcher on what took place in Tasmania, and he mentions that it is among the most violent penal colonies in history. Now, I want to add this little bit, even though I already mentioned it earlier, that Australia, uh, under the auspices of, of exploration by James Cook, was set up as a penal colony, right? Like prisons in England were already becoming overcrowded. They had been dabbling with this idea of where are we going to send all of our extra uh, prisoners uh, across the Great British Empire, where the sun never set, of course. They had been thinking about maybe sub-Saharan Africa. They'd been thinking about parts of the Caribbean. But eventually they did settle upon Australia because in his own mind, again, it was nobody's land and it was wide open to basically send prisoners to. So the important part here is in, in Madley's research, he found that the fact that many of the people that show up there are already experiencing, and I quote, isolation, neglect, forced labor, incarceration, torture, and executions at times, these people were traumatized convicts as well as free colonists. And he basically says the fact that these people experience these own horrors hardened them to violence and made them, in other words, more violent towards the people they came into contact with. What do you think of this assertion by this researcher? Yeah, I think it's an important context that, you know, not only was the British setting up, like you said, penal colonies on Australia and Tasmania to send their convicts, but that Tasmania specifically was like the worst of the worst, right? Mm-hmm. So it was the inmates that were there were, you know, more violent, et cetera, than inmates elsewhere. And the way that they were treated was worse than they were treated else. So we're already talking about prisons. And now Tasmania is like the worst of the worst, like you said, neglected, tortured, et cetera. And so not only are the inmates, this is their life, right? They're exposed to this constantly, but all of the people around them, right? The other settlers, it just creates this culture of violence, right? 
And to be clear, when we say inmates, there were only only the extreme ones were usually like imprisoned full time. The rest, of course, were put into like forced labor situations themselves, almost like indentured servitude. So it's not like they had these like mass prisons like set up all over the Australian um, continent and the island of Tasmania. So the even though we're calling them inmates, it's it's very different than like a modern day inmate. Yeah, and the way it's they important call- to point out, right? It's not like. We had all these violent inmates that were isolated in this prison away from the rest of everyone else. And then we had the settlers that were just living their lives, you know, completely detached. These people are all existing, like, for the most part, together in society, right? And the way they kept the ones that were criminals in check is through this violence, right? Um, So anyway, Madley goes on to argue that another factor that was – put into play here is this layered hierarchy. So even though the criminals that were still serving out their sentence in various ways in Tasmania were seen as less than to uh, the lower amount of free colonists that were there, they themselves used the excuse that they were at least above the indigenous and needed to exert that violence on the indigenous population to maintain what little status they already had. So it's basically the same idea. And we saw this, of course, in places like Jamestown in Virginia during that level of of colonization, whereas the elite white population is able to co-opt the quote unquote poor white population and say, well, at least you're not X, Y, or Z. You're not indigenous. You're not a slave. So at least you have that going for you. And we're here to at least protect what little status you have. And this leads to even more on violence and subjugation and exploitation of indigenous populations. Any thoughts you want to add to that? Yeah, it's just a completely manufactured hierarchy, right? Like you said, it's creating layers where there weren't layers before, really, right? And it's all under the auspices of control. One of the things that rationalized the exploitation and uh, I I can't even think of the word land grabbing, I was going to say land dispossession, that's the word I was looking for, um, that took place in in Tasmania, even more so than, than mainland Australia, was the supply line rationale. They basically argued, many of the colonists and the inmates argued that they have the right to take these things from the aboriginal population because their supply chain is even weaker than the one that was feeding Australia. So they're really kind of isolated and, and they're left to basically fend from themselves and they need to acquire resources basically by any means necessary. So we're going to see that land disposition, land dispossession becomes prominent in Tasmania and absolute annihilation of the natural world around them to include animal populations. There's numerous species that remain extinct on Tasmania as well as mainland Australia. There's numerous invasive species that are going to be introduced. Um, I mean, obvious examples off the top of my head. The emu is completely extinct in Tasmania. Obviously, there are emu in Australia. They lose a war to them later on. Um, The Tasmanian tiger, one of the most famous cases because we actually have video footage of the last one that was alive in captivity, the thylacine, it, it goes extinct during this time period. All of this shows how complete the takeover by these colonists was of Tasmania because it's not just stealing the land and exploiting the Aboriginal peoples. It is a complete re – it's almost a complete makeover of even um, the, the, the ecology of the island. Uh, there's also massive uh, amounts of seal and whaling sealing and whaling. It bled over even to human abuse as sealers would eventually steal Aboriginal women to keep them company on the boat. So we see sexual exploitation taking place because of the need to acquire these resources and to profit off of these resources. Uh, anything that you want to add? I think the supply chain thing is important, right? That on Australia, 
the main continent and specifically Tasmania, I mean, more so Tasmania, survival was difficult, right? They weren't feeding these feeding, but like these settlers and the inmates and the aboriginals, right, with supplies to live like this lush life, lifestyle, like they were having to work hard to survive. And oftentimes there wasn't enough to go around, right? I only say that because it lends itself to this like violent, a certain mentality related to land dispossession, right? Like we have to do this to survive. And we have to keep in mind, as I've already mentioned, and, and as badly asserts in his research, these are violent people that have experienced torture themselves that are exerting this upon, again, the Aboriginal people, the wildlife, the resources, the again, the ecology of the island. By 1822, 7,000 of the people on this, the, excuse me, not the people, of the colonists on Tasmania were convicts. That's half of the colonial population. So these are, se- half the population are violent at this point. And they were, as Nick already said, the worst of the worst. They had even been removed from mainland Australia, which of course was also a penal colony. These convicts had experienced, again, flogging, torture. They'd been working on chain gangs. There's obviously executions. We've talked about this. Um, if you ever even ever, ever heard of the uh, cat of nine tails, the, this thing that is like a whip with nine different little things attached to it. And basically they whip them with the removal of the skin. It takes off muscle. These are the types of abuses they had um, experienced before they get to exert their abuse upon the indigenous population as well. Port Arthur and Macquarie Bay are some of the most notorious prisons in British history. And they're there. Um, many now here's the one thing that we have to add. There are a lot of escapees as well that are able to basically free this flee the system. And because Australia is so sparsely populated, it's I don't want to say sparsely populated as it as is like James Cook, where he says it's basically nobody's land. There are hundreds of thousands of Aboriginal people, but Australia is kind of big. So there are like these wide open spaces between settlements. So it was very easy to kind of get lost. So if you wanted to escape your indentured servitude as a, as a criminal, as an, a British criminal, you could. Many of them become, become what we call bush rangers, and basically their goal is to terrorize both sides. They're there to terrorize the state, um, for abusing them, but they're also there to terrorize the indigenous population because they need the resources that the indigenous populations are sitting upon. Um, there's a couple of interesting sources from the time period. A man named Henry Wallace in 1825 observed that the country at present, and he's talking about Tasmania, is in a most deplorable state, with impossible to, which was impossible to travel from one township to another. And again, that's not because of indigenous resistance. That's because of escaped convicts running around Tasmania willy-nilly doing whatever they want to colonists and indigenous populations aside. It becomes a wild, wild west kind of situation. Uh, Another person named James Hobbs in 1830 in his report had this to say. He says a person named Carrots is known to have boasted that having killed a native in his attempt to carry off his wife, he cut off the dead man's head and obliged the woman to go with him, carrying it suspended around her neck. I like that story not because it's – I don't like the graphic violence of it, but it shows how far these people were willing to go in terms of their torture and violence. Like he cuts off the neck of an indigenous person and makes his wife, that person's wife, carry around the head around her neck. Um, any thoughts that you want to add in here as we go through kind of the violence? No, I mean, I think it's important to understand, like we talked about before, that these aren't standard prisons, right? That the, most of these people are out doing hard labor. So, cause it's hard for us to imagine how could there possibly be so many escapees if they're in this like institution, but like, they're just out, right? It's a much more commingling with the rest of society, right? So it's easy to escape. And like you mentioned, 
it's sparsely populated enough to where you can escape out in the quote unquote wilderness and like they're not going to come find you, right? That would be like an impossibility. Extermination became the policy of the state. And I want to be 100% clear, extermination of the escapees, of the bushrangers. I want to be clear here that they they got so out of hand that at a certain point, uh, basically the colonizing, the colonizing state decided we've just got to start killing our runaway convicts. The reason this is important is because many historical theorists argue this made it not very, uh, not a very difficult leap to then say later on, we also need to eventually exterminate the Aboriginal people. Do you think that there's any correlation there? Oh, 100%, right? Like, it's the step one is hey, the escaped convicts, right, who they in their mind, the state thinks should be rightfully imprisoned, and maybe they should is basically wreaking havoc on the countryside, attacking the settlers, attacking the aboriginals. Like we need to put, implement a policy of just getting rid of them, right? Quite literally. It's a very small leap to start applying that to the aboriginals, right? When they start resisting and so on. And that's the next part I want to talk about here, agency. Oftentimes when we talk about colonial processes, we just kind of sweep under the rug the fact that the indigenous populations have agency and often resist. Many times, of course, things become more difficult because of the introduction of diseases or because of differences in weapons or things along those lines. And and weapons do make a difference. I always like to get into this debate a little bit. Why did Native Americans or maybe some sub-Saharan Africans, or in this case, aboriginals, have like guns? And, And then we get to the whole guns, germs, and steel argument of of Jared Diamond and things along those lines. Well, here's the thing. It's value systems. You could have given many of these cultures till the end of time to invent the gun, and it's not that they wouldn't have invented it because they weren't intelligent enough to. I would argue that their morals and ethics dictated they never needed anything that efficient at murder. And that says actually quite a bit about the Western civilizations that they decide to, of course, take this thing that was meant to be almost celebratory in Chinese culture. And by the time it makes its way West, it turns into a a, a weapon of mass destruction. Um, So I did want to kind of throw that in there. But regardless... Um, the aboriginals do start to fight back guerrilla style, which of course always works for a little bit for many indigenous populations, or in some cases later on down the line in places like Vietnam in the 20th century, it works and, and it actually wins wars. Didn't win this war for the aboriginals on Tasmania, but guerrilla style does give the British problems. Why does this guerrilla style tactics give the British problems? problems, um, not just here, but it did so obviously in the U.S. War for Independence. It did so during um, uh, Tecumseh and uh, Pontiac's rebellions and even King Philip's rebellion in uh, American colonial settlements. Why? I mean, the British military is absolutely not trained to deal with guerrilla style, right? Their entire MO is, you know, meeting on the battlefield, lining up and just winning because they have more numbers, right? So their soldiers are getting mown down, but they don't care because in every war they've ever fought, they have vastly more numbers than any other opponent. However, in this case, that's not the case, right? The the full brunt of the British military isn't in Australia. These soldiers are, I mean, oftentimes not even trained really in military tactics at all, certainly not in dealing with guerrilla tactics. 
And in Tasmania, it's not even really British military. It's more like policing, like state policing yeah. forces, because the real military, what, what, the, and there are real military there. They send actually a lot of the military down to Australia, basically as a jumping off point for colonization of New Zealand. Many overlook that. Even though New Zealand is actually a lot farther from Australia than you'd think, they actually use it as a jumping off point because the Maori in New Zealand, another indigenous population, are waging full-scale war against the British population. So it, it does end up being a jumping off point. But regardless, in Tasmania, it's mostly police forces. Now, the aboriginals use attacks on isolated targets. They were assass- their assassinations were usually done by a weapon called the wadi, which are basically these spear throwers. Um, so it was silent, obviously, not that guns were super advanced by, in, what, 1826. But regardless, these spear throwers um, became actually quite feared among the colonial population because it could happen at any point in time and no one's going to hear you scream because it happens so quickly. Um, the reason I mention this is because this fear, and we know when a population feels scared, you can get, convince them to do a host, a host of things. This fear leads to this idea of manufacturing a terror among the colonial population and getting them all whipped up into a fury and, are, and basically bringing them together. People that would have been on opposing sides, maybe during like the extermination of the convicts or things along those lines, they come together now to basically decide that we need to eliminate the aboriginal population. There were five factors that are usually identified by the aboriginal population for why they started to commit these assassinations against settlers. So they're not assassinating like high-end politicians or anything along those lines. They're assassinating settlers because the settlers they see as the problem here. They're the ones taking land and exploiting resources. And in certain cases, as we see in the James Hobbs report, cutting off heads and making people wear them around their neck. The five factors they identify are land dispossession, number one, destruction of food resources. We talked about that. They Basically, all of the traditional food sources are going extinct because of the over-exploitation of the environment by the colonists. Um, child abductions, which we already talked about for labor. Constant rape of Aboriginal women, which again, we talked about. Not a lot of women make it to Tasmania. Not a lot of women make it to Australia in general. Like I should say, British women make it to Australia in general. Even less make it to Tasmania. So these men, these convicted felons, more or less, are running willy-nilly around the continent doing whatever you can imagine to the Aboriginal women. And then the last reason was murder. Mass propaganda campaigns overemphasize the severity, though, of Aboriginal resistance, which, of course, is surrounded by that cultural fear. They also subjugate the context of which in which things are taking place. So they won't. So, for example, the James Hobbs report um, would not be made public, right? Because you don't want your public to understand the horrors that are being committed around the Aboriginals or else they might begin to empathize with them. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add um, to this? Again, this is kind of cut and paste from so many colonial projects. It's almost criminal how many times this is repeated throughout the basically through the 14 through the uh, uh, well, I mean, we might even be able to argue through today, but well, at least through the 20th century. Right. Yeah. I mean, this sort of, you know, whipping people up into a fervor is an important aspect, like you said, right? It creates solidarity where oftentimes there would be none and it creates it definitely solidifies that line of the other, right? Us versus them. Civilians were encouraged when this us versus them paradigm is created to join paramilitaries. There's a great quote by by the researcher here, Ben Madley. He says, settlers shot them as native dogs. Dehumanization in combination with government brutality, torture, and capital punishment helps explain how a man could boast that he had thrown an aboriginal woman upon a fire and burned her to death. And how stockmen, not contented with taking aboriginal women, have been guilty of the most horrid atrocities towards them, murdering them without scruple. Dehumanization 
dehumanization also led to killing Aborigines as mere beasts in a sport almost as common as that of kangarooing. Fear and dehumanization helped some settlers, police, and soldiers to rationalize diabolical violence and annihilationist attacks. Even the Lieutenant Governor Arthur in 1830 had this to say. He said, and I quote, the Aboriginal race will be exterminated if they can neither be conciliated nor taken. Self-preservation will compel the inhabitants to destroy them. So even though the governor is not arguing for genocide himself, he's saying he's overwatching genocide and it's almost like there's nothing he can do about it. Thoughts? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, the quote is, it's not funny, but it's humorous. His position, right? Like, hey, they're going to be exterminated if they can't, we can't gather them up and like take them somewhere else because the settlers are like doing this and there's really nothing we can do. We can't interfere. The best we could do is like get them out of here, get out, get them out of the way, you know. By 1828, Aboriginal resistance peaked in Tasmania, though mostly in terms of theft. There were The assassinations actually slowed down just a little bit, and most of what the Aboriginal people were doing, because all of their resources are gone, their land is gone, many of the animals they hunted or fished for or whatever, they're being overexploited at this point, if not fully extinct quite yet. So they are now forced to, to steal, to steal things like cattle or sheep or whatever that the British had brought over. So at this point, they are now using that excuse of theft as a reason to use British military might against the Aboriginal people because they are now legally committing actual crimes against property. And we know how the British and obviously the Americans as well feel about property. Property is almost more valuable than human life. In fact, I would argue in in, in our cultures, it actually is, which is an embarrassment to, to, to reveal about our cultures, but it is, it, it really is. So the traditional British military were effective. We have these civilian paramilitaries running around Tasmania. Um, It's important to understand that in this context, the governor, Arthur, declares martial law. And and why is martial law – like why is that important, that the governor would declare martial law within this context? This is going to be a problem mostly for the aboriginal population. I mean, under martial law, right, any due process is out the window. So that's a problem. Not that they were really receiving legal protection anyways, but this gives the settlers, I mean, anyone but the aboriginals, right, a right to basically do what they will without persecution. Every major publication in Tasmania, and, and I use the word major um, liberally here because the, there's only thousands and thousands of people in, in, in Tasmania. It's not millions and millions, but like the, the, the major publications, the Tasmanian, Colonial Times, Hobart Town Courier, uh, Launceston Advertiser all begin running these headlines, essentially calling for the extermination of the indigenous population. So now we see that even though Again, the government, the state itself has not officially called for extermination. They're not doing anything about the fact that it's happening. Arthur has declared, the governor has declared martial law, and now the actual publications, i.e. pop culture, is now calling for their extermination. And these people are whipped up into a frenzy. It's into this frenzy that in 1830, uh, a 2200 citizen soldier um, army is meant to clear the island. It's basically called the Black Line, and it takes place for two years, where essentially these 2200 citizens um, form a literal line and basically sweep all of Tasmania north to south, armed with hunting rifles. Their plan is to basically hunt down all remaining Aboriginal people just as they would kangaroos, just as that quote earlier asserted. Now, they're not super successful, I must stress that, but the fact that they, they 
they tried to do this and they spent two years of their lives basically sweeping north to, north to south, hoping to hunt these human beings is almost dystopian in a way. Um, anything that you would like to add there? The fact that they weren't successful just helps us understand how poorly trained they were and how well the aboriginals had an advantage right in the in that their i mean native landscape it's kind of it's almost if it wasn't so sad it would be comedic imagining these you know over 2000 soldiers literally forming a line and trying to sweep and not being failing at that even right Back in England, the Secretary of State, George Murray, feels a little bit of regret over what he's hearing is taking place, but he never orders Governor Arthur to actually stop the Black Line sweep, which again is not even a direct order of Arthur himself. Uh, the Secretary of State had this to say. He said, the adoption of any line of conduct avowed uh, or for its secret object, the extinction of the native, leave an indelible stain upon the character of the British government. I like that line, not because we're seeing a lot of empathy from the Secretary of State, George Murray, for the Aboriginal population, or there's even any humanitarian aspect there. He's worried about what it's going to do to the reputation of England's legacy. By the time all of this is done, and even though the black line itself is not super successful in actually hunting down um, in, uh, indigenous the uh, indigenous population, the whole colonial process is successful eventually in 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 its extermination in Tasmania. Again, disease plays a role, uh, land dispossession plays a role, and here's the thing that you know what. Before I go even further, here's the thing that many people forget about disease. A lot of people that like to apologize for colonial projects by basically excusing them as like the colonists didn't know these diseases were going to be as, as, as problematic as they were. And to an extent, that might be true, but they learn very quickly that it actually is a process. And in cases like we see in North America, they actually help spread the disease through, of course, the distribution of blankets. We know that. We have primary sources that admit to that. But also things like putting people in prison in or removing them from their land or uh, putting them in concentration camps, as I'm about to talk about, these things actually perpetuate the disease. So it's not just that the Aboriginal population is not immune to these diseases, these Afro-Eurasian diseases that are being introduced. It's the fact that the conditions that the colonists put them in make them more susceptible to catching these diseases and not recovering from them because they have no the, the food resources, water resources, even being settled, right? Constantly being on the run makes you more susceptible to getting disease and dying. What do you think of that? I mean, yeah, the... Like you said, the common excuse to like, well, the colonizers didn't understand what the impacts of the disease would be. Like, yes, at this point, right, they, they would have known. It, we're in the 19th century at this point. They knew what was going to happen. They knew like, hey, if we want to prevent disease from spreading, we shouldn't concentrate all of these people into one central location, etc. But they're going to do it anyways, right? It's, it's not an excuse. 200 survivors are sent to Flinders Island. And when I say survivors, I mean indigenous survivors. This is by 18, 1835. Again, the black line itself wasn't super effective at like hunting them down, but the whole process that had basically taken place for the last three decades was. And again, some of it could be attributed to disease. Some could, could, could be attributed to the fact that there was no land to live on and you're constantly living on the run. Some of it is outright murder. Some of it, of course, is actual conflict between, um, I would argue, warring forces, Aboriginal resistance and British policing forces. But regardless, by the time we reach 1835, there's only about 200 survivors that they're able to round up and send to Flinders Island. That means 
it, by censuses back then, only one to two full-blooded Tasmanians or full-blooded Aboriginals live on Tasmania freely. One or two, not one or 200, not one or 2,000, one or two. A concentration camp is set up at Flinders Island. It's called Wybalena Concentration Camp. It's basically established as a refuge. The British state at this point is basically saying, we're going to send these people here because we can't let them go extinct. We can't have this basic this stain on the British legacy. So we're going to put them um, on this island, even though it's a, basically a concentration camp where you're concentrating a population there that are basically going to be forced to work. Now, if if, if, if Australia is already far removed and Tasmania is even more far removed, Flinders Island is even more far removed than Tasmania. So it's like this, like, like, like there's these, this hierarchy of how far isolated and lacking resources you could be in this colonial process. They put the aboriginals on the absolute worst place they could put them. The weather is horrific down there. Again, it's cold. I know parts of Australia are super warm and we think of beaches and stuff like that. Not down here in Flinders Island. This is cold. This is cold, rocky coast. There are no resources. There's not a lot of fresh water. We've seen this before in all colonial projects. Once the war has been won and there are survivors, i.e. refugees, where are you going to settle them? You're going to make sure they have the worst conditions possible because in your own mind, this is where they belong. After 14 years on Flinders Island, only 47 of the original 200 survivors sent there remained. In terms of all of Tasmania, estimates have it, at, at, and this is in three decades, in terms of all of Tasmania, between four to 9,000 aboriginals were murdered. 47 remained by that point in time. Any thoughts? I mean, like we started this episode discussing, right, this is a pretty clear case of genocide in a very short period of time, right? Within three decades, the entire race is essentially wiped out. We're left with roughly 47 people, you know? Even British Parliament at the time, and again, they're back in England. So even though they technically have some sort of say or should have some sort of say of what's going on, they're, they, they, they don't do anything about it. They're, they can file reports, they can pass laws, but what's going on in Tasmania is, is going on in Tasmania and there's not a lot that Parliament's going to do about it. They had a report. It's called the British Parliamentary Select Committee on Aboriginal Tribes. It meets in 1837, even before um, we're down to only 47 Aboriginals in all of Tasmania are left. And this is their quote. I think it's a good quote to kind of end on. Um, it says, the injuries we have inflicted, the oppression we have exercised, the cruelties we have committed, the vices we have fostered, the desolation and utter ruin we have caused stand in strange and melancholy contrast with the enlarged and generous exertions we have made for the advancement of civil freedom, for the moral and intellectual improvement of mankind, and for the furtherance of that sacred truth, which alone can permanently elevate and civilize mankind. Every law of humanity and justice has been forgotten or disbanded. I like that quote because it says like, oh, we're an enlightenment society and we're advancing society and we have a bill of rights and constitutions and all of these wonderful things that, that, that England had at this point in time for our own citizens. And yet we are hypocrites, essentially, is what this quote is saying. We're hypocrites because of what we have done here. Anything you want to add to that before I continue with one more thought? Nope. Okay, this final thought, even though this is admitted by British Parliament in 1837 and numerous reports come out throughout Australia's colonial history, the Australian government, once it's granted independence in the 20th century, which we will probably do an episode on later, 
doesn't necessarily heed this humanitarian project. Australia, upon independence in the 20th century, continues to commit numerous atrocious crimes against the Aboriginal population, uh, mostly in mainland, because as we already discussed by the 20th century, there's nobody left in Tasmania. So in the mainland, they're putting them, of course, on reservations. There are numerous child abductions. There's still child abductions going on to this day in Australia of Aboriginal peoples. There's still abductions going on to this day in North America and in, in, in the United States and Canada of women and children on reservations. So this is something that, that many of these, pro, these, these colonial projects, once they stop being, being colonial projects and the state becomes the state, a new state, Australia, United States, Canada, New Zealand, they continue to commit the same atrocities that their colonial masters had once committed as well. Why do you think that's the case? I mean... I want to say like independence isn't all that it's cracked up to be, but that's making it far too simple, right? It's states are going to state, right? Like it doesn't matter whether you're under the British empire or you are now the Australian state or whether you're under the British empire or you're now under the United States of America, right? And that we could have so many examples. States only function in one way, right? They only have one capacity for how they behave and it involves the oppression and exploitation of the population whatever that looks like. Australia, like the United States, has still failed to come to grips with the horrors of its criminal past, of its genocidal past. And that is something that is still haunting the continent to this day, as they're still dealing with extreme forms of racism, exploitation, racism, of course, against immigrants as well, coming from Southeast Asia. It's it's actually very interesting how this process correlates across like different places. I mean, in this place, in this case, halfway across the world, we're seeing these commonalities here. Um, So again, I just kind of want to complete this episode at this point, wrap it up. We wanted to focus mostly on Tasmania as an example of genocide. Again, I want to reiterate between four and 9,000 Aboriginals were murdered in Tasmania in a three decade, um, in a three decade long process. And by the end, only one or two free Tasmanians were made on the entire island. There is no debate. This was a genocide. Take us out. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. I am Nick. I'm Jared. Later.